So um, preserving food is processing food in a way that stops it from decomposing. So there's two main ways that food decomposes. So the first thing is by microorganisms. So microorganisms are things like bacteria and fungus. The second way is by oxidation. And there are lots of other little ways, but those are the two primary ways that food decomposes. And so microorganisms, those bacteria and the fungi, they create enzymes that then kind of digest the food and break it down and cause it to rot and decay. And so when we preserve food, we manipulate the environment of the food by, um, by manipulating the, the temperature or the moisture content or the acidity or the oxygen levels of the food to make it inhospitable to the growth of those microorganisms. Does that make sense? Okay. So why should we preserve food? We can preserve food so that we can obviously enjoy that food at times of the year when it's not in abundance or when we're not harvesting it out of our garden. We save a lot of money. That was one of the reasons that we started canning because we started eating more organic and to buy a can of organic peaches or even applesauce sometimes can be very, very expensive. And so by canning those that produce ourselves, we can save a lot of money throughout the year. You become more self-reliant. You know what ex exactly in your food, because there are a lot of additives in our food. And um, especially if you're growing it yourself, then you know what the input, inputs of the soil are. You know if anything's been sprayed on that. Um, even organic farmers sometimes spray things on their food before or after harvest. And so you know exactly what you're eating. Um, we use it as a ministry to others. It's really easy to share dried food or canned food with people, jams and jellies, and they love it because it's something that's not very commonplace anymore, something that you've put a lot of time into. Um, trying to find my clock here. And then also, just as stewardship, being good stewards of the things that we have. So if you have a lot of food, it seems like you're not being a good steward to let all that food go to waste, right? It should be put to good use. And also just to practice kind of a lost art. Um, like I said, when we first started doing home food preservation, we had a hard time finding that knowledge because um, we've just, in the convenience of our world, kind of got out of the habit of doing those things. Anyone who has access to fresh food and some basic kitchen equipment can preserve food. For best results, you want to plan to preserve food when things are in season and at the peak of ripe, ripeness. And um, kitchen setups can, go, can be anywhere from pretty basic to advanced. I have some really awesome pictures on here of different kitchen setups that we've had over the years. We've had very small kitchens that we've canned in, and we've had large commercial kitchens that we have done food processing in. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all. We've done stuff indoors. We've done stuff outdoors. We've set up tables like this in the middle of our kitchen to give us extra space because we didn't have counter space. And um, one year, my husband even took so he took like an old door that we got for like $5. He cut a hole in it and put a gas cooktop with a propane bottle underneath. And then we could process our jars outside on the porch and not take up kitchen space. So sometimes I will process foods in small batches and sometimes 
you know, when it's apple season, we make 100 jars, quarts of applesauce. And so it's not a one size fits all. And a lot of times you can make things work for you. Um, my husband has even built, he, he took a big water tank at one time and we were getting ready to move and we had all these peaches that we had to process. And so he made a firebox underneath this big <laughs> water bin and we lit a fire underneath it and we put, he put racks in there and we could fit 20, 26 jars per rack and so 52 quarts at a time we processed and we were just moving them through there and got through all of our peaches in a day. And so a lot of it is really being creative um, and working with, with what you have available. I do have a picture of it, if your I plug it in. Your husband's bringing the adapter. Oh, that's the other one. Okay. <laughs> so I'll just keep moving, and I can try to come back and kind of show you some of the things that I'm talking about here. Okay. So there are different methods that we use to preserve food. Um, I'm going to mention about five or six of them, but we're really going to talk about three today. So the first one is freezing, where we manipulate the temperature. And then dehydration, which we're taking out the moisture. So all of these things, those bacteria that we're talking about, need those to survive. So if you take away the, the um, temperature that they thrive in and make it freeze a freezing point, that bacteria and molds and things, they can't grow. Okay, dehydration does the same thing by removing the moisture. Canning will do the same thing by manipulating the, the um, acidity sometimes or increasing the temperature to kill those microorganisms. There's also freeze drying, which you have to have some pretty specific equipment for. Fermentation, which uses um, biological action, like bacteria, fungus, those type of things, yeasts. Um, to, me, to create acids and alcohols that then preserve the food. And then of course, you can just store things in things like root cellars. Um, and that will preserve the food if you manipulate the environment enough to make it um, ideal for... Sorry, I'm distracted by the PowerPoint now. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about freezing. Okay, thank you for your patience. <laughs> okay, so here's kind of some different setups that we've had in the past. And I have to show you one bragging picture of. So this is our farm family. We're very blessed to um, be farming right now with an older couple that are in their 70s. And then these are our four blessings on the bottom, a farm in South Dakota. Okay. So this is, let's see, not that one. This is an example of um, what I was saying with kind of like the cooktop and the outdoor stove, you can just use an old door and we got a cooktop off of Craigslist and you know two by fours and you have yourself a makeshift canning table there. Um, and then the one on the left is our, was our new pressure canner so my husband's very proud of that and that, <laughs> that makes you very excited. I love that he loves canning as much as I do. Okay, so we're gonna go ahead now and talk about freezing. So freezing is the easiest method of home food preservation. Um, it, it preserves a lot of the enzymes and the nutrients because you're taking it at the peak of ripeness and then you're just freezing time until you use it, okay? 
There's a decreased risk of pathogens when you preserve in this method. And like I said, you can preserve it at the peak of ripeness. So you can take a really soft, juicy peach and freeze it like that, and it's gonna be so sweet. But if you took that same peach and you tried to can it, there's heat and you're essentially cooking it, and so it would just be mush. And so when you're freezing, you can really have, have a lot better flavor in your produce. If your temperatures, your freezing temperatures are maintained, you can store frozen food indefinitely, okay? But the downside of that is that you do need the access to the electricity and the reliance on electricity for freezing and that you're limited to the space of your freezer, okay? So freezing is an awesome, easy way to preserve food, but it does have some downsides. If you lose electricity at some point for an extended period of time, and you think about all the work you put into filling up your freezer, you're shaking your head like it's happened to you before. <laughs> yeah, so definitely a con of that method. Okay, so the next method I wanna mention is dehydrating. So dehydrating is probably one of the oldest methods of food preservation. Thousands of years ago, they were drying figs and dates and fruits and things. Um, you have less storage limitations, like you don't have to rely on that freezer space. You can keep dried food lots of places. It's pretty convenient to use, take with you. You know, we eat raisins out of a bag, easy to snack on. They have a long shelf life if they're stored properly, and you don't have to rely on the electric storage that you do with freezing food. Um, and then also, when you process, when you dehydrate foods, you can control the temperature that you're um, dehydrating them at. So you, if you keep it at a lower temperature, you preserve more of those um, beneficial enzymes and nutrients in the food. The biggest downside of dehydrating food is the time factor. So your dehydrator is only going to hold so much, and it can take 8 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, depending on what you're dehydrating to dry that dehydrator full of produce. And so you fill it up once and then you can't fill it up again until the first batch is done. And so if you have a lot of food right away that needs processed, then that can be a big downside. There is also an amount of um, vitamins and nutrients that are lost in the process. And then you also need specific equipment to dehydrate. Um, whether it's having a dehydrator or you could make your own dehydrator or um, sun-dry foods, but even sun-drying foods requires sunshine and a certain amount of time at a certain temperature without moisture. So you have to have the right environment for doing that. Home canning, you're not as limited to the space like um, you are with freezing, but the best thing about canning is that you have just this array of options. Of um, You can make sauces, you can make jams and jellies, you can, you know, can vegetables and fruit, so there are a lot of options with canning. Um, it's convenient to use. I mean, how hard is it to open a can of applesauce and eat the applesauce? So um, very easy to use. Um, the downside of canning is that there's a pretty big learning curve that we have to kind of get over initially, or um, maybe not even the learning curve, but just the intimidation of doing it. <laughs> because what's the one thing that everyone hears about canning? Botulism. Okay, so does anybody know what botulism is? Some of us. Okay, so we've heard the word, but we don't necessarily understand it. So there is a bacteria called botch. Okay, let me get it right. Clostridium botulinum, and 
it produces a toxin that then attacks the nerves. And so if untreated, it can be fatal and pretty serious, but it can be treated with antibiotics and um, antitoxins. Um, but, you know, it is a risk, but if you prepare your food properly, you don't have to worry about the risk of botulism. The bad thing about botulism is that you can't taste it or smell it. You, like, you don't know that it's there. So as long as you're following proper preparation guidelines, it's, it's a very, very rare thing. So, um, so there, are specific, there is specific equipment that's required for canning, um, but it's fairly cheap. And then, of course, I mentioned the pathological risk of botulism. So, um, but that, again, that's a very small risk. So, um, Before you begin, it's really important to decide which method would be best to use for the produce that you have. So I guess a good example of this would be, you want to imagine how you would use it. So if I have a couple bushels of green beans, I know that... Um, I don't usually want to spend my freezer space on green beans because I like to have fruit in the freezer because we like making ice creams and smoothies and so we try to fill our freezer full of fruit rather than vegetables. So I'm not going to freeze it. I'm probably not going to make a whole lot of dehydrated green beans because sometimes they're fun to eat but they're pretty hard and um, my kids will only eat so many dehydrated green beans. But they love canned green beans and so I know that if I have a bunch of green beans I'm going to can them. Um, also, you want to determine how much you'll actually use. So um, an example of that is that it's not going to do me any good to can 50 quarts of turnips if no one in my family wants to eat turnips for dinner. Okay, whereas I can probably can 100 quarts of applesauce and we'll easily go through that in a year. So um, sometimes it's better to feed the compost than to feed the family with it because you want to put your time and energy where it's going to be used best. Okay, and so then you always just want to make sure that you have the necessary equipment on hand to do the preserving that you're going to do. Um, just really quick, um, when you produce or when you um, choose produce, you want to choose produce that is as fresh as possible at the peak of ripeness or just under, as I mentioned with canning, sometimes it needs to be a little underripe so that it'll be firm enough after the processing period. And then you want to choose produce that doesn't have any signs of decay. And so you don't want to have things that have rot or mold or things on them. So if you think about mold, it's kind of like a fungus, okay? So if I have a mushroom, if I see a mushroom and it's growing out of the ground, that mushroom is the fruiting body of a plant that is growing under the ground. And the plant is substantial. And so uh, mold is like that on your food. If you have visible mold on your food, you have a lot of mold in the food. And so to cut it off, you don't know how deep that goes. So it's best to just avoid food that is spoiled and stick with feeding your body those healthy things that it deserves, okay? And you're gonna have better results anyway. <clears throat> so then we wanna talk about how we prepare our produce for preservation. So the first thing you wanna do is you always wanna wash produce, even if it's homegrown, because it helps to remove the microorganisms that are everywhere off of the surface. Um, you want to peel the produce if necessary. You don't always have to peel, but sometimes it makes it more enjoyable later if you've peeled it. Um, some people peel tomatoes, some people don't peel tomatoes. One of the easiest ways to peel tomatoes, and actually peaches and pears, is to blanch them. And so to do that, I like to use my pasta dish because it has a colander that fits in it, but you, 
you get water boiling and then you put the, so in this instance you would put tomatoes in the colander, put it in the boiling water and set your timer for one to two minutes. And I usually adjust it, you know, I do my first batch and see if I need to adjust it. Pull it out of the boiling water after the timer goes off and put it in cold water. And then those skins will like slip right off. You don't have to do much work with pears, with peaches, with tomatoes. Um, and if they don't slip right off, maybe you need to leave them in the boiling water maybe 30 seconds or a minute longer. If they come off a little too easily and the flesh is getting mushy under the peel, then maybe not as long. And so that's a really quick way to peel things. And then you want to slice and chop your vegetables or your fruit, and that's going to depend on how you're processing it and what you're processing. So we're going to talk specifically about the process of freezing. And like I said, freezing is the simplest, and we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. Um, many vegetables require blanching before you freeze them, and that just kills off the enzymes that tend to help the food spoil. So fruit is more acidic than vegetables, and the acid helps to keep them from spoiling. And so we don't have to blanch those like we do the vegetables. So blanching would just be the process that I talked about with peeling just a second ago. You want to dip them in the hot water, then in the cold, and then you can drain them well. From there, you can just put them into containers. And so you, when you're freezing, there are freezer containers that stack nice. You can use Ziploc bags, like in the picture here. Um, we've used mason jars, which don't always stack so nicely in the freezer. Um, but you know, you can use whatever container. The trick is that you want to try to keep as much air out of there as possible after you put stuff in it. And so you can put it directly into the containers or you can do what they call flash freezing. And that's, so on the right hand side you can see there's kind of some slices of peaches laid out in a single layer on the tray. And what we'll do is we'll put them on parchment on a baking sheet and then put another layer of parchment and put another layer of peaches and do a few layers and then let them freeze that way. And then you can just peel up the parchment and they fall apart into individual slices and then put them in bags and freeze them. And they're a lot easier to use that way because it's not just a solid clump of something. And then once you've done that, just remember to label it and put a date on it and throw it in the freezer and that's it. So pretty simple and easy, right? So we're just gonna go ahead and move on to dehydrating. So the dehydrator that, the dehydrator that you see in the top is the one that we have. And um, it's nice because you can fit nine trays in it at a time. You can adjust the temperature, making it hotter or cooler. They have some models that have a timer on them, which, are, which is really nice to have a timer, um, but not necessary. And then they also sell the sheets that you see in the middle picture, and they're a solid sheet, but they still have airflow. They allow for airflow. And so those are nice for doing like fruit leathers and things, and they're made to fit the, they're a standard size to fit the dehydrator. <laughs> And there are all kinds of different dehydrators out there at all kinds of different price ranges or stainless steel or plastic. And so, you know, if you're on the market for a dehydrator, just look at reviews and what fits in your price range and go for it. And you can always move up or from there. Um, so when you put your produce in the dehydrator, you want to put it on the tray in a single layer. And then you want to put it in the dehydrator and depending on what you're drying and how thick you cut it, it can vary. Um, the drying times can vary and the temperature that you're drying it out. So the best way to figure out if it's done drying is the pliability test. And so basically for vegetables, you want those to only have 5% or less of moisture content. You want them very dry. 
And so if you take a vegetable out and you try to snap it, it should just break right in half. It should be very brittle. And so that would be an indicator that your vegetables are done. Fruits will be more pliable than vegetables, but they, you want them to have only about a 10% moisture content. So they will feel very brittle, but they'll also have some pliability where they will slightly bend. And it's kind of a learning curve knowing when they're done and when they're not done. Also, when you slice a fruit in half, you won't be able to see moisture on the inside. It'll look like dried. So the best thing to do to make sure that your food is dry enough before storage is to give it a conditioning period of about one week. And what you do is you, you will take your food out of the dehydrator and then you'll let it cool because what happens when you put something warm in an enclosed container? It sweats and then there'll be moisture in there and then it'll mold. So you wanna make sure that it cools first. And then once it's cool, you wanna put it in a bag or a jar or whatever container. And then you wanna just let it sit for about a week. And sometimes you can you know, shake the container a little bit. Um, but what that will do is it will let the, the moisture that's still in there kind of disperse. And then in a week when you open that jar or container and you take out, say you made a zucchini chip or an eggplant chip, it should still break in half and not be pliable. If it's once again pliable, it needs to be dried longer, okay? And then once it's dry, you wanna put it in an airtight container and you wanna remove as much air as you can from that container. So Ziploc bags, you can, you can kind of suck the air out of those. You can get vacuum seal containers or they have, if you have, um, uh, what is it, a vacuum sealer, they have little lids that will actually fit over a mason jar that you can suck the air out of mason jars with. And um, so those are very convenient and that can help just increase that shelf life because any air that you have in there is gonna have moisture in it which then will transfer to the food. You also wanna store dehydrated food in smaller batches because when you open that up to get food out, you're exposing that to the moisture in the air. So every time you open it up, you shorten the shelf life. So if you have them in smaller individual bags, you don't have to open them and they'll last longer. Okay, we're gonna move on to canning and canning is a little more involved process. Um, so I'm gonna try to not make it confusing but hit on a bunch of little um, definitions and topics. So one of the big things with canning is that you need to know the, the acid level of your food. So some foods are acidic and some are non-acidic or low acid. And they tend to be fruit on the acid side and vegetables on the low acid side. So that matters because how acidic your food is is gonna determine how you process that food. So high acid foods are gonna be processed in a water bath canner, so just boiling water, whereas low acid foods require a pressure canner to process those. Now the reason for that is that the acid inhibits that bacterial growth that we're trying to discourage. When you don't have that added protection of the acid in the food, in the low acid foods, you need a higher temperature to then kill the bacteria and the spores that are in the food. So the pressure canner, so when you process in a boiling water bath canner, it's about 112 degrees when it's boiling, the water in there. When you, press, when you are processing in a pressure canner, it's around 240 depending on the weight that you have it set at. And so those higher temperatures will kill that bacteria. So tomatoes are borderline acidic. I know 
people who swear that they have never put any lemon juice or anything in their tomatoes and it's been fine, but different tomatoes have different acid content. So the recommendation is that you acidify all tomatoes. And so you can do that by adding powdered citric acid, by adding just lemon juice, um, or by using vinegar, which I usually don't, I don't, I've never used vinegar. I use usually lemon juice or citric acid powder. But you wanna add, a, if, you're, if you're pressure canning your tomatoes, you don't have to worry about it, but if you're gonna do them in the water bath canner, you wanna add that little bit of acid to give it that extra bit of protection. So the equipment that you need for canning is pretty basic. A lot of times you can go to the store and just buy a canning pot with all of the accessories there for 30 or 40 bucks. Um, you need a canning pot, you need the tongs to pick up the jars and the basket um, or rack that goes inside. There are different kinds of canning pots. Um, so this is the basic one on the top. And then like down to the bottom left, that's a steam canner. And I have, I have never used a steam canner, but I have friends who swear by them. And so you only put a couple of inches of water in there. And so they, they process much faster because you're not trying to boil a whole big pot of water at a time. And, but I've never used one, but that's what they look like. Definitely an option. And then the one on the bottom right is a electric canner, which are kind of nice because you don't have to use them on the stove. And you can set them next to your sink. They have that nice spigot to drain off the side. Um, and I've never used one of those either, but they, I've looked at the reviews and they have really good reviews. So, sterilizing the jars. Um, there are three different methods that I have used for sterilizing jars for canning. So the first method would be to place the jars in your canner and then fill the canner with um, water, hot water but not boiling, and then you wanna, and you wanna cover the jars with the water by one or two inches so they're completely under the water and then bring that to a boil and boil them for 10 minutes. And that's um, at altitudes less than 1,000 feet. So if you're above 1,000 feet, you have to add one minute to that. So if I was at 3,000 feet, which is where I live, I have to boil it for you know, 13 minutes. So um, that is the classic method of sterilizing jars. Another way that you can sanitize jars is by using the sanitize feature on your dishwasher. So that's kind of nice because you can put like 50 jars in your dishwasher, turn it on, hit sanitize, the only downfall to that is it usually has to go through the whole wash cycle and then go through the sanitize process and so it can take a couple few hours to do that. So you need to do it in advance if you're going to be doing it. And then you have a bunch of jars that are nice and warm in their little environment and all sterile for you <laughs> to fill. Okay, so my personal favorite method is to put empty jars in an oven that's turned to 225 degrees and let them sit in there for 20 minutes. And while we're canning, they're out of the way. You can just keep a rotation going through there. And um, that is the method that has worked best for me, just because they're, they're not taking up space on the counter. And um, it's simple. So that being said, according to the National Center for Home Food Preservation, and this is as of August of last year, they say when the process time for canning food is 10 minutes or more in a water bath canner, and that's at sea level or under 1,000 feet, the jars will be sterilized during processing in the canner. So you don't even have to pre-sterilize them. And if you're pressure canning, you don't have to either. So, hey, hey, 
But old habits die hard, and I feel like <laughs> it needs to be as sterile as possible. So I still sterilize my jars. Again, that's a matter of preference. But according to the National Center for Home Food Preservation, it's, it's not necessary if you're canning it for more than, or if you're processing it for more than 10 minutes. Okay. So let's see. When you fill your jars, you can do that a couple of different ways. So when we put the food in the jar, we can put it in the jar raw, which is called raw pack or cold pack. And that is just taking your chopped vegetables or fruits, placing them in the jar, and then pouring hot water or syrup over them. And usually that's used for pressure canning. And then hot pack is when you take that prepared, that food that you've chopped up, and you put it on the stove in water or syrup, and then you boil it for a couple of minutes, and then you put the food along with the liquid and fill the cans that way. So. The methodology of that, the reasoning for that, is that every food has um, air. It has air in it. And so when you cook it, it forces the air out of the food, so you can then put more of the food into the jar. Does that make sense? When you process it and cook it for those couple of minutes, it forces the air out of the food, so then you can pack more into each jar. So that's why a lot of people like the hot pack method. I personally prefer the cold pack method because it's one less step for me to do and I can just pack the food in the jar and move on. <clears throat> As we're talking about filling jars, we need to talk about headspace. So if you're making some sort of jam or jelly, you are cooking your food, all that air is released out of there, it's nice and hot, you require less headspace. <laughs> And so the headspace refers to the space that's between the bottom of the lid that you put on and the top of the liquid in the jar. So that little space in between, okay? So when you heat up the, what happens to things when you heat them up? They expand. And so your headspace makes room for that expansion. And the process of canning forces the air out of the jar that way. And so then when it seals, it creates a vacuum seal that holds the lid on. So jams and jellies, you only need a quarter inch of headspace. Fruits and tomatoes, or anything that's in a boiling water bath canner, it's a half inch. And then things that are low acid that are going to be cooked in a pressure canner need more headspace because they're getting hotter, they're expanding more, there's more pressure there. So they need one to one and a quarter inch of headspace. So then you want to put your lids on your jars after they're full. You want to wash your lids, and you know, I remember having to always boil the lids. That's no longer necessary. So um, even the little boxes, they'll tell you just wash the lids when you take them out and make sure they stay clean and then just put them. You want to wipe the rim of the jar and make sure that there's no debris on there that's going to cause it not to seal. And then just put the lid right on there and screw the um, ring on. You want to make sure that those rings or bands aren't screwed on really tight because you want to allow room for the air to escape. So just kind of finger tight, okay? And um, you can reuse those bands, but not the flats. There is one, one brand of the canning flats or the lids that you can reuse, and that's a Tabler brand. And they tend to be kind of expensive, so I've never used them, but they're a plastic BPA-free <coughs> reusable flat for your canning jars. So once you get the jars filled and the lids on, they need to go into the canner. So if you're using a water bath canner, you put them into the canner and add water to the canner. Now you want to make sure that the water or the contents of your jar 
that you put the hot water in is a similar temperature to the water that's in your canner. Because if you have really hot contents in cold water, what's going to happen? They're going to break. And everyone that I know has had broken jars when they can, and it is like the most frustrating thing ever because you just put your heart and soul into filling that jar. So the biggest way to avoid that is by having a similar temperature between the two, the contents of the jar and then the water that you're putting it into. Does that make sense? Okay. So then you want to start your timer, or you want to turn on the heat, and once you get to a complete boil in the canner, you want to start your timer. And processing times vary depending on um, what you're processing. And I have a handout that I just realized I left in my room <laughs> that has, it's like a reference chart for processing times, but they're pretty easy to find online or, or at your local ag extension office. Um, a lot of times whenever I get ready to can, I just, I'm like, oh, I can't remember how long to process tomatoes. And so I'll get online, I'll say, oh, okay, it says 90 minutes. And then I have a, like a cheat sheet that I put on the side of my fridge by my stove that I write tomatoes, green beans, and I just have it there now because I got sick of looking things up every single time. And so it's nice to have a little cheat sheet. And so if you want one of those, I'll go grab them and then I'm gonna be at the, um, the booths for this next session, so just find me and I can give you one of those cheat sheets or you can find one online pretty easy too. So um, the one thing that's also gonna vary for how long you process other than what you're processing is your altitude. So if you're at a higher altitude, you require longer processing times. Does anybody know why that is? The boiling point, yes. So the higher you get, you know, the air density thing. So at sea level, water boils at 212 degrees. But the higher you go, the boiling temperature of water comes down in degrees. And so you have to process for longer periods of time to compensate for those few degrees of difference. So you can also find altitude charts for pretty easy online. And, you know, some people will just say, oh, well, if I'm at, uh, you know, for every thousand feet, I add an extra five minutes, which is really overcompensation if you look at the chart because it's like five minutes from, for 1,000 to 3,000. But it's better to overcompensate than to undercompensate. <laughs> okay, so then that was a water bath canner. But if you're pressure canning, which seems to be more intimidating for people than just water bath canning, there are all kinds of pressure canners out there, and I have one that holds four quarts that I can use on my stovetop for if I just have a little bit of green beans or turnips or something that I want to preserve. And then we also have that big one that we can put outside and put our propane burner under and process 19 quarts at a time. And so um, there are all kinds of different you know, versions of pressure canners. If you have an older pressure canner that you're not buying new, you can take it to your local ag extension and they can test like the seals and the pressure gauge and just make sure that it's accurate because it's really important to be safe when you're um, working with pressure canners. And that's pretty simple to do. And if you buy it new, you don't have to worry about that either. So you do the same thing. You, you pack it full of as many jars as you can fit in there. You only have to put two to three inches of water, but if you're gonna be processing for a really long time, you wanna make sure there's enough water in there that it's not all gonna steam off or vent off in that time. So longer processing times require more water. You wanna put the lid securely on it and crank up the heat, and you want the valve open at first, and you wanna let the steam kind of run out of there for 10 minutes, and then you can put your weight on or turn your dial to your pressure that your chart has told you to process at. 
And then from that time, once it reaches the pressure that you're, you want to be at, then that's when you start your timer. So you start your timer. When your timer goes off, you have to make sure that you're maintaining that pressure the whole time or that boil for a water bath can or the whole time or you have to start your timer over because it drops below that temperature that you want it to be at. So um, for your pressure canner, once you reach the time limit, um, then you just turn the heat off and let it set and like depressurize for at least 10 minutes. Usually it takes longer than that. If you depressurize it too fast, sometimes you can just open up the valve and that change in temperature is just gonna make all of your contents of your jars, the liquid contents kind of blow out of the <laughs> out of the jars and then you won't have the liquid in there so it's so um, that's where it's nice to have a bigger pressure canner because if you're doing smaller batches sometimes it takes a really long time for it to depressurize and come back down to where you can open it up yep the steamer so you're asking if the steamer is like a water bath canner or a pressure cooker it's it's similar to a water bath canner yep Yep, because it doesn't, um, a steamer just creates steam instead of a boil. Um, and it doesn't create the pressure, so you don't have the higher temperatures. Okay. So then also, just a side note, never leave a pressure canner under unattended because that's when they do bad things. And that's, <laughs> that's where everyone gets scared of it. So you just want to always keep an eye on it, you know, make sure the valve is jiggling or jiggle, you know, depending on the style that you have. Just make sure that it's working properly the whole time. And that's pretty easy to do if you're working next to it. So next is the cool down. You remove the jars um, from the pot and you place them on a cooling rack or on a towel on the counter. And it's good to place them at least an inch apart so that they have airflow in between the jars. So the ones in the, <laughs> oh, so the ones in this picture are clearly like really close together. So you don't want them like that where they're butted up against each other. You want to leave room for airflow so they cool down nicely. Um, you want to place them and leave them undisturbed for 12 to 24 hours. And this is really hard for some people to do. I've had canning jars sitting on my counter and people come over and start tapping my lids and I'm like, don't do that, don't do that. Because what happens is when they start cooling off, you know, it, when you're canning it and that air is expanding, it's forcing the air out of the jar and then it creates a vacuum and it'll draw the lid down and it'll create a seal. So if you, and the lids are up, when you take it out of the canner, you'll hear them start going tink and popping down and sealing. And so if you go and you start tapping on the lids and you push it down, you don't know if that actually sealed or if you just pushed it down. And so then that may spoil. And so it's really important just to leave them, let them be undisturbed. And, um, and then after that, like you're done, mission accomplished. And then you can enjoy the fruits of your labor. So you wanna wipe them down because sometimes you know they'll, they'll have drips on the outside of them. Clean them off so that you don't have ants or whatever in your food storage cupboard looking for sugar. And then label them and then store them. So you wanna store most foods, you know, dried foods or canned foods, you wanna store away from sunlight and in a cool place. And especially, I didn't mention this with dehydrated foods, they will last much longer the cooler temperature they're stored at. Okay, so I don't, it's like a, a certain amount of, per degree, it increases their shelf life by years even. So 
Um, and the most important thing is just to have fun with it and to eat well. And so we really enjoy good food this way and we preserve a lot of produce this way. So here's my brag pictures at the end since so you didn't get to see the ones at the beginning so much. So um, we have a little bit of time left and I just want to open it up for if you guys have any questions or if you have any tips that have like really revolutionized your canning experience or your food preservation experience. And so I see a hand over here. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to remember the brand of our pressure canner and I don't remember the brand of it. Um, my smaller one is a Fagor pressure canner. Like what I would do, okay, so the, let me repeat the question. So the question was when you're looking for a pressure canner, um, what are things that you avoid or things that you look for or, or what you need or don't need? Um, really, all you need is something that has, that tells you what the pressure is and that seals well. I would, you know, it doesn't matter where you buy it, you can always get online and look at reviews. So I would just shop around and look at what size you're looking for and um, look at, go on Amazon and look at the reviews for that and see, you know, like, because some people will say, yeah, it exploded all over my kitchen. And, you know, sometimes it's because people walked out of the room and left it unattended, you know, but... Um, what do the majority of people say about that canner? And I think ours is, I want to say American something brand, aluminum canner, but it's nice because it has, um, it ratchets down, the top ratchets down closed all around it, and it's pretty beefy. They have a lifetime warranty. You know, most canners are made pretty stout. And so I would just go with kind of, you know, look around and find a really trusted brand. And I haven't shopped around a lot for pressure canners, which is why I can't give you a whole lot of information. Does anybody else have an answer for that question? Has anyone else shopped around a whole lot? Okay. Sorry, I don't have a better answer than that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah, I, um, I can put it online. Yep, on the, at AgriSite. Okay, yes, I, I plan to. Okay, so mm -hmm. you Yes, so are you talking about water bath canning or pressure no, canning? Water bath canning okay, so pressure canning. Um, so she's asking, how do you know that you're maintaining where you need to be maintaining? So I'll give you an example. So my pressure canner, my large pressure canner, has a gauge, okay, and that gauge will go from zero to 30 pounds of pressure, say. I don't know what exactly it is. So if I want to can at 15 pounds of pressure, I put it on the heat and that gauge will keep start going up and up and up and up. Once it reaches 15 pounds of pressure, that's where I want to be. So then I'm going to manipulate my flame underneath it to keep it there. So I can turn it down a little, turn it down a little. You don't want to go below that 15. If you go a little above it, it's okay, but you don't want it to drop below that 15. And so you just turn, you just adjust your stove or whatever to maintain that temperature you know, if you leave it cranked, the temperature or the pressure is going to get way too high. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, some of them, they'll have, like my smaller one has two pressures, and I always forget what they are. It's like random, it's like 8 and 12 or something. So I can can, so I can at 12 pounds of pressure when it should be 10. And so it just has a valve that I turn on one or two. Okay, and so if I want to do 12 pounds of pressure, I put it on two. And once there's a steady stream of steam coming out, that means that it's reached pressure for that. And as long as there's a steady stream of pressure coming out, I'm maintaining that pressure point. So you don't have to turn the fire? 
I do, yeah. Once it once that steam is coming out, I'll turn it down. Just like if you're boiling, you know, rice or something. Once you get it boiling, you kind of turn it down to maintain that simmer. Yep, you're going to do the same thing to maintain that pressure. And and it's really better to have gas in it. Yeah, gas and electric are not, gas is much nicer to cook on because you can adjust those temperatures very quickly. Sometimes what I'll do if I'm, if I'm canning on an electric stove, which I have, is I'll be heating stuff up on one burner. Meanwhile, I'll have this burner set on like three or four. So when I get it up to pressure, I can quickly move it over to the other burner and kind of maintain that boil since the electric takes too much time to come down. Does that make sense too? Okay. Uh-huh. Some pressure canners have weights. So it has like fifteen. Mm-hmm. So the weighted pressure canners, are you asking how to tell the the So those the it's basically a round mechanism that sits there's a little steam vent that comes out of the top of the lid and it's a round weight that sits on that vent. And so there's three holes usually, sometimes they're more and sometimes they're different, that go on that vent. And um, one says five, one says 10, one says 15, say. If you want it at 10 pounds of pressure, you put it on the number 10. And then once the pressure comes up, that steam is gonna push that weight and make it go tss. So you probably heard that if you heard pressure canners, they make that little tss, tss sound. So you count the jiggles, basically. It's called a jiggle. It jiggles it and moves it and steam releases. And so you want to have, I don't remember what it is because I don't have a weighted pressure canner, but it's like three jiggles a minute or something, and you're at that pressure. Okay, so you want to have a certain number of jiggles per minute, and you count the jiggles. And so that's how you know you're maintaining that pressure. Okay, next question. So I was just wondering if you ever... Okay, so <laughs> yeah, so he's asking about making pickles, and Adventists are always on the mission for the best pickle because we don't like to use vinegar, right? And um, a lot there's this controversy about fermentation, so I was really hoping nobody would ask me about pickles. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I will make some pickles each year with vinegar because every once in a while we want a pickle, and I would rather eat my home canned pickles that I know what's in them, then go buy them at the store if we are going to buy them. So sometimes I will make pickles, but not very often, with vinegar, not very often. Um, I have, I do not, I'm so sensitive to sour things, and so I do not use lemon juice. But some people have found great alternatives to making pickles with lemon juice rather than vinegar. The thing is, though, you have to have a recipe for lemon juice pickles rather than vinegar pickles because the acidity is not the same, and when you start manipulating ingredients, you can run into trouble with not having the right acidity. So the other option is lacto-fermented pickles, which um, there's some controversy about fermented foods in the Adventist church. So I will give you the best person to talk to about lacto-fermenting is Tom Meyer, because he is a food scientist. He's a scientist, and he's done a lot of lacto-fermentation, and you just want to make sure that you're doing it correctly so that it's not producing a lot of alcohols in that fermentation process. So you're using yeast and bacteria to create acids that then are preserving the foods. Which, uh, which method do you think is better? Which method do I think yeah, is better? I usually just don't make pickles because I haven't found 
you know, I've had, um, so there's this, at our church back home, there was this dear old lady who has canned her whole life and she makes pickles every year and you know, they don't use vinegar. And so I was like, I want her recipe because she has amazing pickles. And so I was not familiar with lacto-fermentation and that's what they were, is they were a fermented pickle rather than, um, you know, one that has been acidified with vinegar. And so I made her recipe and then the first one I went to open, I opened it and it went and there's all this fizz in there and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> you know, it scared me and I called her and they even felt fizzy on your tongue, like when you took a bite of them and I called her and I said, I, you know, I made your pickles and they're like fizzing and I don't know if I should eat them and she said, oh, they're probably okay. <laughs> and I'm like, they're probably okay. Like, do yours fizz? She said, oh, they're probably fine. And so I ended up dumping out quarts and quarts and quarts of pickles. And so I just usually just don't make pickles because I haven't found the right solution for that yet. So if anybody has a recipe that they want to share with me, I can put it up on the website. Okay. Okay. Debbie Fisher. Debbie Fisher of Fisher Farms makes great lemon juice pickles. Okay, I'm going to make a note of that really quick. Okay. And I, we have time for another question or two. So up front here. Go back to your homemade table. Mm hmm. You want to look at that picture? Yeah, and I had a question okay. about can you can on glass. On a glass cooktop? Okay, so the question is can you can on a glass cooktop? So we had a glass cooktop and electric range, and we, cooked, we canned on it a lot. We damaged it some <laughs> because of things boiling over. And I have, like last year, um, we cooked on a glass, canned on a glass cooktop, and I was very diligent about being very gentle with it because, if, you know, things can cook onto it and, and you can pit the glass and things. So you can, but you just have to be careful and be really gentle with them. It, yeah, it held that much weight. Yep. Yep. On my glass cooktop, it recommended not Okay, so she has a glass cooktop that recommends not canning on her glass cooktop. Yep. Okay. So I guess look at your manufacturer, you know, look at your booklet and see what it says. Because I've used them, but if it's recommending not to, I don't want to tell you to do something you shouldn't. So, yes. I, I just Yes. So she's saying that she cans things, but then she doesn't ever use it up. And she'll go two years, three years, and not use that. And so I kind of hit on that at the beginning where you only really want to can what you'll use um, or what you can gift to other people because, you know, once the fresh food comes on, you don't want to use your canned green beans. You want to eat the fresh green beans. And so, um, you know, there's a balance there. And just because you have the produce doesn't mean you have to preserve it. You know, sometimes it can better serve you as compost than it can as food. And you can put your time and energy somewhere else that you would spend preserving it because, yeah, it's kind of disappointing when you don't use it. I have never used an Instapot pressure cooker, so I don't know. Okay, so no, you cannot. Okay, so you cannot can with an Instapot pressure cooker. 
Um, so she wants to know if I have a recipe for syrup that I use for canning fruit. I never can in syrup. We never use sugar when we can our fruit. So if we do applesauce or peaches or pears or anything, we just put water in there. We don't use a syrup. And that's a preference, you know, some people like the syrup. Some people don't like it, but we've just never used it, and we're used to it that way, and I add sugar later if I want to, so. In the back there? By an exploding pressure can. Oh. I won't ask old. Does anybody know anybody who's ever had botulism? Yes. Was it a long time ago that you met someone who had botulism, or was it more recent? I think, I'm thinking, Okay, so I should I should mention on that note. So he's saying that um, basically our society really kind of discourages. We have this consumer model, right? So we need to keep consuming and buying things, and so they discourage the home canning and food preservation, and so. Um, there's a very low risk of botulism, and there's a very low risk of pressure canners exploding if you are using it properly. And so um, I want to say that most canned foods they recommend within using from one to two years. So if you're not gonna use those canned foods in one to two years, and she's saying the person that she knows that had botulism, it was from eating canned food that was probably in a jar for way too long. And the longer that is in there, you know, the, the sealant on the lid gets brittle. It's not going to have as good a seal. Um, it's just going to have more length of time to, to have issues. And so, yeah, I'll take one more question because it's already five. So she's saying when you use a steam canner, which I don't have any experience with, there's only a, that small water level in there and so it heats up very quickly. So you want to make sure that the contents of your jar are very hot. So you would use the hot pack method when doing the steam canning to make sure that um, you're not bringing the contents of the jar up, at, up to heat too fast. And just one more thing on So then she's referring back to make sure your produce is of good quality and that it's not spoiled. And if, we, if you start off with a good product, you're going to have good results. You know, if you start off with a subpar product, you're going to have subpar results and possibly dangerous results. So thank you guys all for coming. And if you want to talk more, I will be at the Homeschool Roundtable and I'll go grab those handouts. And if you want to find me, if you want a handout. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.